somebody's going to die on my watch. Even though we'll try our hardest. Please don't. <laughs> but we're not uh, drinking right now, except for tea. Just tea. Because we have a job to are, it. Yeah. And some of us are on antibiotics. And How's that going? It's antibiotics. <laughs> I was told that I sound congested today. So to all of our listeners, I am sorry if I sound congested. You sound congested. Thanks. I might get a little bit hoarse because not because I'm on antibiotics, because I was really, really belting paramore on my way home from work. So oh, not Bruno? No. We don't talk I, about oh, Bruno. <laughs> we don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> that only gets stuck in my head right before I film. I film. I record the podcast. So you do do it on purpose. Not on purpose, on purpose. For some reason, this podcast, which is haunted or hoax, just gets me in the Bruno mood. Well, this isn't a Disney podcast. We actually just talk about ghosts and their history. And I'm Jennifer. And I'm Kristen. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome. You want to just like get on in? I mean, we're not getting on into it. We we rambled a little bit. You want to get started though? Yeah. And we're actually switching it up on people and you're going to go first this time. Yeah. I like how you mentioned last episode that you were like (laughs) I always go first and then this one we were like maybe you should go first well yeah because I was like just looking into it and then like you said we had twin telepathy Mm -hmm. best friend mind and I texted you and I was like I think you should go first on this one and you you were just about to text me so Mm -hmm. I mean there's no there's no denying what happened in the house I don't have any big aha moments for this it's a terrible story with a lot of information. Um, but this week we are covering the Villisca axe murders slash murder house in Villisca, Iowa. And it is a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And I realized while we were, while I was looking through everything that I had no idea where Iowa was. I think I thought Iowa was like Indiana. I think I mixed the two mm-hmm. of them up. So um, but you know, you learn something new every day and I can't wait to hear all, well, I can wait to hear all the grisly details about the murders, but I also can't wait because I kind of just skimmed over them so I could get the horror firsthand on the podcast. It is definitely grisly. And for all of you sensitive listeners, this is a rough one. So I would not blame you if you wanted to skip through my portion or at least the beginning of my portion, because it is not pretty. Yeah. All of our mom listeners kind of just kind of take warning. It's going to be, it's going to be a little rough. I think it's going to be a little rough. The Morris lived in a freaking adorable little white farmhouse. I don't know if you were able to see the picture of it in 1912, but there it is. Yeah. It's really cute. Really cute. Which was on 508 East second street in Villisca, Iowa. And their four children lived there as well. Herman, who was 11, Mary, who was 10, Arthur, who was seven and Paul, who was five. Now I did use the Smithsonian article for this. And in that article, they, for some reason, use some of the kids' middle names as their first names. So if you're reading that and you're like, what is going on? That is what is going on. It's a little weird. I was going to say, what was the address again? 508 East 2nd Street. That is so weird because Sally House is 508 North 2nd Street. Isn't that weird? That's creepy. That gives me like creep out for some reason. I don't know why. It's just a weird coincidence. And it's even weirder that we just did did it. 
Yeah, and we didn't even know. Okay, well. Luckily, nobody was axe murdered in the Sally house, though. Yes. The only blades were figure skates. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice plug. Okay. So Josiah owned a local farm equipment business that apparently was doing super well. And the evening of June 9th, the family would end up spending their evening at church and would invite the Stillinger girls, Lena, who was 12, and Ina May, who was eight. Love that name. That's very cute. Over to spend the night. All eight of them would return to the house around 9.30 p.m., where after no doubt some playing and some good times happened, all of them would go to bed. The Moore family going upstairs and the Stillinger girls going downstairs into the guest bedroom. What they weren't aware of was a stranger that was watching them. And there's some speculation of whether he was in the attic where they found two cigarettes or he was in the barn where they found some hay that was like patted down like somebody was sleeping there. Mm-hmm. And they found like a hole in the door where somebody could like peek through. It was all very suspicious. Right. But regardless, the family was completely unaware and they went to bed. Now, according to the pathologist, sometime between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m., this stranger made his way out of the attic. And according to a reconstruction done by the town coroner the next day, the stranger took an oil lamp from, a, from the dresser removed the chimney, which is like the glass piece in the middle, Mm -hmm. placed it out of the way underneath a chair, bent the wick in two to minimize the flame, lit the lamp, and then turned it down super low. So it was making the very faintest glow. After he did that, he walked upstairs or through the hallway, depending on where he came from, Right. past the more children's rooms, and went into Josiah and Sarah's room where they were sleeping. He raised the axe so high and with so much force that it put gouges in the ceiling, which you can still see today. Right. When he went to strike Josiah, he was actually using the blunt end of the blade. And they suspect that he only needed to bring down the axe once to kill him. Mm. After he struck Josiah, he then immediately struck Sarah in the head as well before she even had time to wake up. They figure this all happened pretty quickly because everybody was found kind of in a sleeping position. Sarah and Josiah were still found in bed. There were no defense wounds. They were still laying in the position that they would be sleeping in. Same with the children. There's no evidence that the children ever woke up or Mm -hmm. even knew what was happening before they were killed. It's kind of very reminiscent of Amityville. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except not everybody was on their stomach. They were just sleeping. Like they were laying in sleeping positions. Like right. some of them were sleeping on their sides. Their heads were still on their pillows. Not something you would suspect if like they heard something upstairs and they went to go run and hide or something like that. Right. Right. They were very like caught off guard completely. Right. And this included... Lena and Ina downstairs, they were still found in their bed. Mm -hmm. So they suspect that this all happened very, very quickly. After he had finished killing the children, he went back upstairs and beat each person individually in the head with the ax until their skull was unrecognizable. 
it was said that Josiah was missing his eyeballs completely. Oh my gosh. And in the coroner's report, Sarah's head was described as the least pulpy. Oh, that's just the most horrific way to describe a head. I just don't. Worst words. The worst words. I will never look at orange juice the same way again. I just, I just ate an orange and now I feel sick. (laughs) Um, It's also estimated that Josiah's head alone was struck about 30 times, Mm. which is more than the Lizzie Borden murders. Yeah, that's some major overkill. Mm -hmm. So after he was through beating everybody's heads in, he pulled the sheets over Josiah and Sarah's heads. He placed a gauze undershirt over Herman's face, a dress over Mary's, and he also covered Arthur and Paul's faces as well. The girls downstairs were also found covered. However, Lena's nightgown was found pulled above her waist, and she had defensive wounds on her leg, and she was missing underwear. There is some kind of contradicting statements. In some of my research, I found that there was a suggestion that she had been sexually assaulted, but in others, it was stated that the coroner and like the examiner found no evidence of sexual assault. Unfortunately, this is not like the Lizzie Borden case where they had oodles and oodles of case files and evidence and witness statements just going off of what was reported. So not clear on if Lena was sexually assaulted or not, but regardless, not a good situation. Everybody was definitive that the nightgown was pulled up, all that stuff. So very, very awful. And it's just very peculiar that like there's so much overkill and then he covered all their faces like that's that's usually with like true crime docuseries and stuff they usually indicate like when people do that it's like a sign of remorse or like yeah guilt for what they've done there were also a few oddities going along with this not only were the bodies covered there were also pieces of um cloth hung over every mirror in the house he even put a piece of cloth over the telephone that they had which some are speculating it resembles a face so mm. he might have been covering the faces there might be some sort of psychological trigger there he didn't want to be looked at after he committed this crime that sort of thing there was also a two pound slab of uncooked bacon that had been pulled out of the ice box and was found wrapped in a towel uh, on the floor of the guest bedroom downstairs. Wow. So weird. When I was listening to my favorite murder, they had said that that was a suspected, like in current times when today's detectives look at it, they look at that bacon as a potential sexual component. Mm-hmm. This is obviously just speculation, but then next to the bacon, they also found a random keychain that didn't belong to the Moors. So not really sure where that goes. Mm -hmm. The killer hung around for a while. He also washed up in a bowl of water because they found a bowl of bloody water left out and left leaving the lamp at the top of the stairs, taking the house keys and being sure to lock the door behind him. That's super considerate. Yeah. Wow, thanks. Wouldn't want anybody to get in, you know, like. Or maybe he wanted to come back again later. To like 
Ugh, that's gross to really like relive something or something like revisit it mm-hmm. so a neighbor began to worry about the family the next day when she noticed that there was no movement going on in a usually very lively house obviously with four kids it would be a little rowdy right so she called josiah's brother who came to check on the family he was barely in the house when he came back out yelling for the marshal in enters the entire town over 100 people entered that house Ugh. and there's one port person even said to have removed fragments of Josiah's skull as a memento no because way Ugh. really need something to remember a massacre why that's like the worst souvenir ever and also that is how you end up with a family curse don't I mean, do that. We already said in the Bell Witch with the teeth, don't take bones of people. No, leave body remains alone. Alone. Leave them alone. So after the parade of people came through the house and destroyed the crime scene, the investigation took place. And let me tell you about the suspects real quick. Okay. So suspect number one is Senator Frank Jones. Mm. Here's Mr. Jones right here. You can't really see his face. Which makes him creepier. Yeah, his eyes are like whited out. That's a little weird. Yeah. So Frank Jones was a state state senator and also number one business competitor and ex-boss of Josiah Moore. Mm. Apparently, Josiah got sick of the poor treatment at his job, so he packed up and left to open his own store and took the very large John Deere account with him. Wow. Rumor has it that they would cross the street to avoid passing each other. This dispute was so strong. Mm. The other suspected reason was the rumor that Josiah was sleeping with the Jones's daughter-in-law, Donna. Let me show you a picture of Donna. She's very pretty. I just, her hair is something else look her hair is a lot but you she was the thing back then you know she was and she knows she it was yes she has very nice bone structure she has got great eyebrows she does have good eyebrows mm-hmm. so donna had quite the reputation back in that day of having numerous affairs which was fueled by her ongoing habit of openly arranging her good times over the phone when calls had to go through an operator oh my goodness Donna, be a little discreet. Come on now. No, you can tell by her face. Donna does not care. She's She's unapologetically her. She's like, yeah, your husband's sleeping with me. Do better. She's that person. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just had a a thought of her like calling through the operator and like to set up a good time. And it's like the operator's husband. Wouldn't that be just so awkward? (laughs) Oh, Hey, Edith, can you connect me to your home, please? I need to talk. It's nothing serious. It's nothing. All right. I need to talk to Jerry, you know, (laughs) again. (laughs) So Senator Jones was 57 years old. He was an older guy. So a lot of people suspected that he would not have been able to massacre an entire family and then some on his own. Right. And he was a senator. I mean, I don't know if. I don't know if like senators made as much as they do today, but I feel like he's in a high enough place of power that even if he was pissed at Josiah for like taking the big account and going off on his own, he still 
it's not it doesn't seem like motive enough to me to Mm -hmm. to murder children so well there was a theory that he didn't do it he hired someone to do it Mm, got you William Mansfield was a suspect for this hitman and Mansfield was looked at because he was suspected in the axe murders of his wife her parents and his own child in Illinois The shoe looked promising, but it was not a fit. He had an alibi with payroll records showing he had been working in Illinois at the time of the murders, so he was released for lack of evidence. Mm. This did not stop the locals, including Joe Stillinger, who was the father of Lena and Ida, and Ross Moore, who was the brother of Josiah, from believing that Jones was guilty, and this caused a huge rift within the city. It was wild, Mm. but he was never, never convicted. Right. So suspect number two is Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, the man I refer to as the man with no last name. (laughs) Let me show you his picture. There he is. Hey there. I don't like the look of him. (laughs) (laughs) So being a reverend and standing at only five foot two. Wow. Short king. And weighing 119 pounds. This shoe didn't even seem like the right size. However, he was left-handed, which the coroner determined from an examination of the blood splatters, which good job, 1912 coroner, Yeah, that the killer was probably left-handed. And Lynn was a known sexual predator. Pretty sure this guy invented the send nudes thing because in 1914, while he was living in Winter, South Dakota, he advertised for a girl stenographer to do confidential work, quote, quote. And in that ad placed in the Omaha World Herald also said that a successful candidate, quote, must be willing to pose as a model. So when Jessamine Hodgson responded, she received his response described as by a judge as, quote, so obscene, lewd and filthy as to be offensive to this honorable court and improper to be spread upon the record thereof so the judge didn't even want to read it out loud i mean but i'll i'll give you hints at what it says so in his milder instructions he told jessamine that she would be required to type in the nude okay and requested her to go ahead and send nude photos of herself gotcha can you imagine like you apply Sounds for a like job Tinder. at McDonald's and <laughs> they respond, Hey, you know, I think you're going to be great at this, but we just need to see your naked body before you get the job. <laughs> we just need to have you give you a good once over without any clothes on. Beyond that creep factor, he was also seen peering in windows in Villisca just two days before the murders. And this guy's a reverend. He is a reverend, a five foot two reverend. So the windows had to be on the first floor for sure. (laughs) He has like a little step stool that goes around under his arm at all times. He just carries like one of those old wooden boxes with him. Yes. He looks like he's being helpful, but he's really being terrible. He's being the worst. (laughs) These aren't for my milk jugs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Also, it should be noted that he did attend the Children's Day service in Villisca, 
where ser- the service had been organized by Sarah Moore and where her children, together with Lena and Ina Stillinger, had played very prominent parts and were dressed in their Sunday best. So a lot of people were speculating that he saw them during the service, became obsessed with them, and then ended up stalking them that night. In this particular instance, he was in the barn and they um, saw that compressed portion in the barn. And so they thought that he was, you know, creeping on them. And then when they went to bed, he entered the house. There was another account where the person was, like I said, up in the attic. Right. Which makes me think that it probably wouldn't have been a spur of the moment. I saw you this morning. I'm going to obsess with you tonight type thing or this evening because he would have had to know the house layout. Yeah. Yeah. And this, and even he knew where the bacon was. That's true. He was going to make breakfast, but he ran out of time. Um, Maybe. But I thought, I mean, it's just very, the whole thing is very odd because like, even if you're in the barn or in the attic, even though there's a whole bunch of overkill and there's stuff like laid out on the floor and stuff, this guy was also very meticulous. Mm-hmm. If he was wait and lying in wait somewhere, he had to have the patience. He was very quick with what he did, even though it was very bloody. And like, it's just, he, this person's very confusing. It's like, it's like two different people. Well, and if you think about it, like you said, he was very quick, right? Mm-hmm. This was not a spur of the moment thing. This was not just like an on the whim. It seems like he kind of knew what he was doing. The fact that it was just bam, 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 bam. Right. Like there was no hesitation. He killed everybody and then he went and mutilated the bodies. Right. But we'll get to that. Keeping with Lynn, in 1917, a grand jury was assembled to hear the evidence linking him with the murders. At first glance, it seemed super compelling. He had sent bloody clothing to the laundry in nearby Macedonia, and an an elderly couple recalled meeting the preacher when he left a 5.19 a.m. train from Villisca that morning, and they remember him telling them about the gruesome murders that had been committed in the town, which is odd since the preacher had left Villisca three hours before the killings were discovered. It also came out that he had returned to Villisca a week later and shown a lot of interest in the murders, even Mm. posing as Scotland Yard because he was an English immigrant. So he posed as Scotland Yard to try and get a tour of the Moore house. Gross. When he was arrested in 1917, Kelly was repeatedly interrogated and eventually assigned a confession to the murder in which he stated, quote, I killed the children upstairs first. And the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it in this way. Slay utterly came to my mind. And I picked up the axe, went into the house and killed them. Hmm. So he later recanted this. And the couple who claimed to have spoken to him on the morning after changed their stories. Kelly said that he was coerced into that confession. And right. like the police beat it out of him. So with that, the grand jury hung 11 to 1 in favor of refusing to indict him. And then a second panel freed him. Mm. So that one went to the wayside. So suspect number three, I'm just going to tell you about 
another murder real quick that happened in Colorado Springs, okay. September 1911. Okay. A little less than a year beforehand. Gotcha. Early on a September Sunday, somebody grabbed an axe that was laying in one of the yards and broke into the house on Harrison Place. They then used the blunt end of the axe to crush the heads of 30-year-old Henry Wayne, his 26-year-old wife, Blanche, and their two-year-old daughter. He then went next door and did the exact same thing to 25-year-old Alice Mae Burnham and her two children, who were ages three and six. Oh my gosh. Before completely disappearing. Alice's husband was in the infirmary due to consumption, which is tuberculosis in case you didn't know. Mm, Of course. (laughs) Just wanted to slide that in there for you. Everywhere and every time in every story, there's tuberculosis somewhere. It's always tuberculosis. (laughs) He was later accused of the murder since when they took him to the crime scene, he showed no remorse. The husband. Oh, had tuberculosis. Right. Okay. That didn't, that didn't stick, but I'm sure there were obvious similarities. Similarities. Yes. Which made me think first off, when I finished this, I was like, how crazy would it be if the person who killed the Moore family was the person who killed Lizzie Borden's dad and stepmom? because really how many axe murders were happening back then true wait when there's like a 10-year difference but it could have been his first well let me tell you to answer the question of how many axe murders were happening back then there were a ton (laughs) there is And you laugh, but you're going to like this. And I hope that you haven't already heard this because I love, I love dropping a bomb on you. I love your reaction. There is this theory going around Mm -hmm. that because there are over between 1909 and 1920, 30 potentially linked ax murders your eyes are getting bigger. I know. There is potentially this unidentified serial killer running around the United States in the early 1900s. Doing all these axe murders. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. So I went on, I found this website, Dark Ideas, and she did this research. She has a really cool map. And she said that she was initially looking at the I am sorry. The Hinterkaifeck. Hinterkaifeck. I'm cussing someone out in German. (laughs) She was looking up those murders, which linked her to the Colorado Springs murders, which linked her to the Villisca murders. And then she was like, let me just do a quick search on the murders that happened between 1909 and 1920 that had to do with axe murders. And she stopped at 30, not because there were only 30, but just because, you know, information overload. Yeah. So without going into too much information, because this is a podcast episode about the Velisca house, not the 
crazy ex serial killer that was going around in the 1900s, but maybe we'll do something with that later on. Yes. Let's do that. <laughs> so like fascinated. I'm just going to kind of touch on some of the linked evidence to some of these murders, as well mm-hmm. as some of the potential signatures to some of these murders, because you and I do like true crime. We do. Can I just, can I just guess like is a potential link trains? Yes. Okay, cool. You're so good at this. I'm so smart. I should be a detective. (laughs) So obviously number one is the ax as the murder weapon. Obviously this was very available, Mm -hmm. but most of the murders occurred with the household ax. So like the Moors were committed with Josiah's axe. So like a weapon of opportunity, basically. Right. And I guess also a weapon of choice because he used it in all of the murders. Right. They were attacked at home and at night and oil lamps were carried into the rooms. In some cases, very specifically, the chimney was removed out of the oil lamp. Hmm. Um, Many victims were killed in the bed, but that kind of goes along with being killed at night. It's easier to attack someone when they're sleeping. So that kind of is you know, presumptuous. They're saying that the curtains or blinds were drawn. And I know that in some of the um, like episodes for the paranormal investigation, they were saying, you know, he covered the windows, he covered the mirrors, that sort of thing. But also they were asleep. I don't sleep yeah. with my curtains open. Me neither. So the mirrors definitely were covered, but most of the time, most people pull the curtains too when they're sleeping. Um, And then as potential signatures, like I said, the covering of mirrors happened in multiple crime scenes and the covering of bodies also happened in multiple crime scenes. A lot of times it was stated that, you know, that means that the killer had to know their victims, but in the specific instance of the Hinterkaifeck murder that this author was investigating, the maid who had only just started working at the farm was also covered. So there would be a very small chance that the killer would have known this particular victim. Right. Posing the bodies was also a common theme. Lena was considered posed. And then in a couple of other murders that the author goes over, there were some wild poses that were found. Mm -hmm. It also suggests that the killer was a stranger Usually it's part of a ritual or something that has been done on multiple occasions and not done as part of a crime of passion. Right. Locking the doors was also consistent in many of the cases, which is kind of weird because why would you lock the door to a house where you just killed everybody that was inside? The only thing that I think of is like, you're trying to kind of cover it up or delay somebody coming in to find the bodies. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, of course the door is locked the next morning, like making it seem like there, there couldn't have been anybody in there. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's also no evidence of a robbery. Nothing was missing. So really it just makes it kind of sink in a little bit more that that person was only there to kill, to kill. I did pause for a minute when I read that somebody took a piece of the skull. Cause I was like, Ooh, what if he came back and wanted a trophy? (gasps) Was anybody like keeping tabs on who they let in the house? No, No. of course not. 
but that's just a theory and it's absolutely crazy to look into. That's why I had so much information and then I stopped and I was like, no, pull the reins, Jennifer, focus on the house. So if you have some time and you like true crime, I know this is more of like a paranormal podcast, but if you're into that sort of thing, definitely would recommend looking into that. Um, there's also a book that was written called The Man from a Tr- from the Train, and it's mm-hmm. a book by Bill James and his daughter, and apparently has really good reviews. We don't read here, so I didn't read it. Hey, I read a book this week. Not a book that has anything to do with podcasts, but I read a book. <laughs> That's what I meant. <laughs> we don't read relevant books. We just like to talk about them. Right. The man from the train, though, talks about the serial killer that was on a train that potentially killed 95 or more people. Mm. It looked good. I almost picked it up on Audible until I saw that it was 17 hours. And I was like, I can't, I can't no, finish that cannot in time. That. <laughs> um, but maybe someday. Yeah. Maybe someday. So bringing it back to the house that's actually relevant the Velisca house. Unfortunately, no one was ever caught for their murders and it's still considered a huge cold case. The last thing I have is in 1994, Darwin and Martha Lynn purchased the home and returned it to its original condition. So you look at it and it looks like a 1912 house, old mm-hmm. furniture, old has stove. an old stove. Yeah. I don't know why we're both <laughs> we're both really hyped about the the old stove. The stove. It does look really cool. So. Somebody posted a picture of the outhouse, old outhouse. Mm, no, thank um, you. And you can stay in the house overnight for four hundred and twenty eight dollars for a group of one to six, or do a day oh. tour for ten dollars. Your choice. I mm, I'll tell you, and then you, you can decide if you want to stay the night or do a day tour or do nothing. Yeah, regardless of if you do a day tour or go overnight, you won't be able to miss it because there is a huge ass white sign with big block lettering that says Velisca Axe Murder House I in the saw front that. lawn. <laughs> it's really just bold advertising. But that is that's all I got for you. Well, that is super interesting. So they don't have like so the third the third suspect is just this like sus- this theory serial killer. I have a name for the serial killer, but it's not confirmed. It's not confirmed. His name is Henry, Henry Lee Moore. Mm. And there was a federal officer that was assigned to the Velisca case, M. McClowry. And he announced that he had solved the Velisca murder and also 22 others that had been committed in the Midwest around the same time. Mm. He thought that Henry Moore, who had no relation, it was just a weird coincidence, was a serial killer responsible for all of those crimes. He had been convicted already of the murders of his mother and grandmother in Columbia, Missouri, just a few months after the murders in Villisca. And he had killed his family using an ax. So... I'll give the sources if you want to look into that serial killer. Um, There were a couple of cases that were linked that looked really interesting that I think we might cover later on. Um, So I don't want to give too much away. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, that is super, I mean, it's horrible and awful and so, so dark, but also very, very interesting. And I'm excited to share the paranormal side of what's going on in the house if you do take a day tour or an overnight tour. Yeah. Tell me all about it after our break. Yes. A different Disney song? Yeah. I've moved on to Frozen. We'll see how this goes because I got wine after all of that. And I have it in my haunted or glass that you got me. But I've only had an orange this evening. So we'll see how this goes. Oh, you left that part out when I suggested you get a glass. (laughs) Too late now. I'm actually really excited to share some of my findings with you because there's a lot. So buckle up. I'm going to start though with a couple who moved into the house in the 1930s, which I'm just just about because like, I rarely get paranormal like experiences, encounters like earlier than the 1960s. Mm -hmm. I don't get a lot of like recorded, like this person thought their house was haunted past that time so I thought that was cool yeah um the house was rented out to Homer and Bonnie Rittner Homer I know I like that name and Bonnie they just you know they were a young couple who got married in November of 1930 and Bonnie soon after became pregnant at the time that they moved in they didn't have a lot of money um they basically just scraped up enough to get like the, the rent and the, like the deposit basically for this house. But soon after they moved in, Bonnie told Homer on multiple occasions that she thought someone was in the house. She heard strange noises throughout the night. And she also began seeing images of a man with an ax looming over the foot of their bed. Yeah. Very, very scary. She became hysterical and she would wake Homer in the middle of the night consistently and he you know how can you comfort your pregnant hysterical wife who thinks it's like there's an axe murderer standing over their bed um it wasn't clear in the article i read about this whether they knew going in about the murders i would guess so but you know 1930s i don't know if they were trying to conceal it at that point or what was happening well it seems like it was the talk of the town. So I don't really see how they wouldn't know about it. Yeah. I mean, I did hear multiple times that this murder like knocked the news of the Titanic off of papers. So I'm guessing that they did know. So it could have colored her, colored her experience. It could not have, you know, I don't know, but they were so frequent and intense that the couple had to go to their local physician who advised Bonnie if she continued to raise her stress levels to the level that she was raising them over these experiences, she may lose Mm. the baby. And Homer, knowing they had no money to move, tried to help her stress levels by staying awake while Bonnie slept, Hmm. like as a way to like put her at ease that somebody was watching over her. Nobody was going to get her, but eventually he also began hearing strange noises 
similar to those that Bonnie described. In one evening, he heard the sound of someone walking up and down the stairs. The incident was so unsettling, Homer decided it was time to take drastic measures and get out. Hmm. Do I have a bomb for you? The following day, he went to the local pool hall, searching for the house's owner to discuss refunding his deposit and rent so that he and his wife could move. He didn't find the owner there, but he found the pool hall's bartender. And when Homer explained what was happening at his house, the bartender produced a cigar box that when he opened had pieces of skull that were claimed to be Josiah's, Josiah Moore's. I don't know if this bartender was somehow connected to the man or woman who took Josiah Moore skulls from the crime scene. And it was like passed down like a really creepy, gross family heirloom. I mean, it could have been the same person. Like this was only 20 something years later. That's true. So I don't, I don't know, but also I guess teeth go in jewelry boxes and skull fragments go in cigar boxes. Cigar boxes yeah. I guess I keep well there um but obviously this unsettled homer more and he ended up just rushing home and collecting his belongings and his wife and leaving them immediately and they decided to just live with relatives and never go to that pool hall again because the bartender is weird as crap right and they didn't (laughs) even bother to get their refund on their deposit they just were like that's it we're done that was all i kind of like got on them there wasn't any like evidence. Obviously it's the 1930s. There wasn't any photographs or EVPs or anything recorded on a camera back then. But I just thought it was really interesting that from the 1930s all the way till today, there have been experiences at this house. Do you think that anybody had the foresight to change the locks on the doors? I don't know. I would hope so. I would hope so, but that because that would be very, very creepy if it was just the same lock. I mean, the house keys were missing, and they never caught the person. So mm-hmm. uh, they have, they would have, they would have had to. I would have demanded it. I'd be like, I'm not. Well, I'm not moving into this house anyway. Um, but <laughs> did you change the furniture? <laughs> right. I mean, apparently the new owners moved all the furniture back in. So, um. But another incident was reported by John and Allie Giesman, who purchased the home. It didn't say when the time frame was, but they purchased the home. They were kind of like the next ones that had big experiences. Darwin Lynn, who was the interviewer for this article, had um, interviewed Dale Miller, who was the grandson of Mr. and Mrs. Giesman. Miller stated that his grandfather would not sleep in the house after a certain point of living there, and he would only sleep in the barn, which is interesting because one of your stories, like one of like the theories around that case is that the barn was one of the places the killer might have hid out. So I don't know why you would feel particularly safe in the barn versus the house, but Mr. Giesman, apparently at, after a certain point, whatever was happening in the house, he didn't want to sleep in there anymore. Mm. Apparently Miller's aunt and her husband. So his Mr. Giesman's daughter and her husband were mm-hmm. staying there and they claimed that the door that led from the front porch to the parlor kept opening throughout the evening. Like every few minutes they would have to get up and close it only to find it open again a short time later. 
at about 3 a.m., Miller's aunt and her husband were seen running down the sidewalk in their nightclothes, just fleeing the house. They and they would they refuse to go back. Miller was actually never told what made them run terrified from the house. I'm guessing something that has to do with the door opening and closing by itself, which I'll get into a little bit later because that's sort of a common occurrence. Mm-hmm. But we also have the story of Linda Cloud and Patty Williamson, who are sisters, and they were interviewed on Ghost Adventures. Their parents bought the house from the bank in 1963. Their father was a truck driver, so he wasn't home very often. So it was mostly just the two girls and their mother. And they described that, like, at first, when they first moved in, they kind of slept downstairs in, like, that downstairs bedroom area. Yeah. And um, they would often hear little girls crying at night, Mm. like the sound of little girls crying. They would also hear children giggling during the day, but they were both very frightened by their time in the house. On occasion, they would return to their rooms and find drawers open and their clothes thrown all around the room. And at first, their parents did not believe them, of course, because parents never believe children. (laughs) <laughs> I will say this, if I have a kid and they ever come to me and say that they have a ghost or spirit bothering them, I will 100% believe them and I will get someone in there to cleanse it ASAP because that's very supportive believe- of you. I am. I'm going to be a supportive. I'm an empath, no, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> but no, I will, I will believe them. Their parents did not until the uh, whatever is in the house turned on their father. Mm. Apparently during the evening when one of the times their father was not on the road, he was sharpening a pocket knife at the kitchen table, which I guess they said was very common. He liked to sharpen his own knives. He had like one of those block sharpener things Mm -hmm. and he was sharpening it away from himself. And then without explanation, according to the, the women, the knife flew out of his hand and actually stabbed him in the palm oh it didn't just slip and he just like cut himself as it right as he he was like going doing behind it exactly they claimed that there was no logical way for the knife to have slipped accidentally and they believed the murderer is actually the dark entity in the house uh linda also said that the house calls her back like tries to draw her back all the time she has dreams about it Mm-hmm. Um, and for what it's worth, they both, both Linda and Patty, when they were interviewed were very like high stress, high anxiety, um, very emotional being back in that house. So mm-hmm. it did have some sort of effect on them. Strangely, a former resident, Vicki Sprague claims that she lived in the home for 20 years and never once saw, felt, or heard anything out of the uh, ordinary. Oh, she was saying, I lived there for 20 years. Nothing ever happened. However, she met with the person who runs the official website for the Liska house mm-hmm. who had just spent the night in the home in 2003. And I guess like she had pulled up and met with the website runner casually. I don't think it was like a sit down in depth interview or something. Um, and she asked if anything had happened when, once they had spent the night. And the website owner, the individual, invited her to spend the night at the house, like kind of told her what was going on and kind of knew that this woman was 
negating experiences and invited her to come back and spend the night at the house. And Vicky's only response was no, thank you before driving away immediately. So I guess that's supposed to sort of indicate confliction in her statements, but she could have just been like, no, why would I want to go sleep in a house that I used to own when I have my own house? Like, you know, I'm like, why am I going to entertain this any longer? Right. It could be sort of a situation with Abercorn where she got so much bad press from all the rumors and experiences going around that she just didn't want to go back in the house. Right. Like, I'm not going to fuel this fire anymore. Exactly. The current owner, which you mentioned, Martha Lynn, doesn't like to talk about her own ghost sightings in the house. Um, She doesn't want to color the experience of the guests. Mm -hmm. which I mean there's so much out there (laughs) she's the last person that's going to be coloring experiences I think that at this point people kind of know what to expect um she did however share a comment with housebeautiful.com on a phone interview when they asked her who she thinks that the the ghosts are and she said quote I feel like there is something there if indeed there are spirits you have to realize that six of them are children I don't know if the murderer still exists there, but there have been a few things that have happened that aren't exactly calming, but I don't like to dwell on it. Smart. Just move on. I mean, I think what she's saying here too, is like, you have to realize like six little kids did die here. So if there are spirits, you should kind of go in there, not provoking them. And that's one of those things. Like they woke up dead. Yeah. That's the long, like they went to sleep and they, they didn't wake up. Right. I mean, so they could be very confused if they are mm-hmm. still lingering. They don't exactly. understand why all these people are in their house. You know, I mean, it, it's not a, it's not a peaceful or even it's out of the realm of possibility of like a normal way to go. So no, it's completely horrific. Yeah. And the fact that it is so horrific, there is bad energy there. Like they're. Yeah. To be able to do that to another human being is just unfathomable. Yes. It's going to leave like a stain on the energy in that place regardless. Right. But yeah, uh, as I said, common phenomenon in the Velisca house include disembodied giggles and screams, unexplained movements, a strange fog that moves from room to room when the train passes through at the time of the murders. And a strange behavior from visitors that indicate possibility of possessions. So there has been some sort of like rumors talk that like the person who committed these murders was possibly possessed by demons. And then the demon kind of lingered at that house. And so, of course, where there's demons, there's Zach Bagans. He likes to hang around them or they call to him or no, whatever. Kristen, he's drawn to them. Right, right. He is a empath to a T. So of course they did an episode on this house, (laughs) but I'll kind of get into touch on their sort of investigation. I did find their episode very helpful because they interviewed a lot of people, which is what I kind of pulled from the most, not necessarily so much their experiences, but their um, interviews with people who have experienced things in the house. So I'm going to touch on the voices and the noises first. There are a lot (laughs) that come through. (laughs) 
Chris Dedman, another investigator uh, that was interviewed on Ghost Adventures, did a said he did a spirit box session in the parlor and captured a male voice saying Reverend Kelly when he asked who was with you. They did not show this. Like, oh. he doesn't have a clip of this. So, I, I mean, it was just his account telling Zach that it did say Reverend Kelly. So. He also said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I compel you to tell me who you are. And it says Legion, which I have no idea what that means. And Zach took that to mean that there's a team of ghosts, a legion of ghosts in the, the Villisca murder house. The Justice League on the other side. The Injustice League of ghosts. I, I can't tell you. I didn't hear it for myself. Mm -hmm. I found his Twitter trying to find some of these EVP and spirit boxes, uh, Mr. Deadman, which I think is just a very great, a great name for a paranormal investigator on the nose. Yes, but he hasn't updated it since 2014 and his website is no longer functioning. So I could not gain access. Yeah. I'm guessing he might just be out of the game taken. He retired. I I guess he Um, changed his name to Liveman. Yeah. I want to live men. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They also had Roy Marshall, who is an author of a book on the the Villisca murders, not necessarily the paranormal. He's a skeptic. Mm -hmm. So he had an interview with Zach who was saying, do you think that we'll get some answers about the case from the spirits? And like Roy humors Zach, but I can see on his face, he's like... (laughs) Well, no, (laughs) Uh, nothing that you're going to be able to bring to court basically is what he says. Um, And Zach does invite him to the investigation, which Roy says, sure, that's fine. He does say that he's open to to communication and experiences. Uh, When they first start doing EVPs in this episode with him for 19 straight minutes, they get nothing. Oh, that's a lot of fun to watch. Yes. 19 straight minutes they of course fast forward and they get nothing which I don't know if that speaks to there's nothing in the house or Roy is a skeptic so when you're not really open to that sort of thing things might not happen or they might try harder they go to the attic and eventually do get an EVP and decide to go down and analyze it in real time with Roy sitting there and they analyze this with Billy which this is a very early episode of Ghost Adventures it has the original team of Aaron Nick and Zach mm-hmm. and they're like our they're like an, their analyst expert Billy and I was like oh my god I didn't know he has been there the whole time <laughs> he has been there the whole time I just thought that was kind of cool behind the scenes yeah and then they brought him on and ruined him like <laughs> so when analyzing it you can hear someone clearly harsh whispering yeah smoker voice yes very like menacing they say it says i killed six kids i cannot confirm or deny again evps are very hard because people hear different things all the time i can definitely hear the eye but everything else just seems like very out of breath and creepy whispering. And we know how we feel about whispering. I hate cigarettes. <laughs> I want you to get out of here so I can take a smoke break. <laughs> I just, you know, again, 
take the EVP, what you will. I will, of course, have the season and episode in our show notes and you can watch for yourself and kind of determine that. Mm-hmm. I also watched a Destination Fear episode with Dakota and Chelsea and Tanner and Alex. Your favorite. Scooby-Doo gang. Love them. They did get an EVP EVP in the attic of an unintelligible voice responding to a question they ask about Melvern Manor. So in this episode of Destination Fear, they actually do two investigations. Mm Mm-hmm. One of this Melvern Manor and one of the murder house, because apparently there's a link between one of the suspects and this Melvern Manor when it was a hotel. Mm-hmm. And some say that the Velisca house and this manor are connected, like the spirit goes between both. Okay. I wasn't really buying that but they did ask a question about the manor and they get this EVP but they say they don't want to misinterpret it because they can't understand what it's saying it does sound like a voice but they cannot can't understand which I love normalize not knowing what the fuck they're saying in the EVP and admitting it (laughs) I did want to like kind of there was a comedic kind of break in this episode of Destination Fear I'm bringing it up solely because I'm going to bring something back. In the children's room, Dakota was sitting on a bed while they were talking about how awful it is to kill children, which it is. And they hear a bang outside of the room right below them. And then they hear some shuffling. And it kind of like made my heart jump a little bit. It was very loud and very intense. And <laughs> they pan over to the door and a cat comes in. Oh, those cats. <laughs> There's not supposed to be a cat there. Apparently it like came in somehow from the outside and it's so cute and it's very friendly and it lays on Dakota on the bed and cuddles him. And it was just very like release the tension moment until they realize that cats like to hang around haunted places. Exactly. I was like, oh, there's a reason why that cat came in here. He was like, something's about to go down. But I do bring this up, like I said, because because it's the nursing home cat and it's like oh you're about to die <laughs> lays lays on dakota lays on dakota i was like you should get out of here before something happens you're next buddy exactly um but they i didn't this- change the locks <laughs> but um Okay, so I bring this up because when they trade off exploring, so Dakota and Chelsea are uh, in the Velisca house while Alex and Tanner are in Malvern, Malvern Manor because they're actually very close to each other. They trade off halfway through the night and they, Tanner and Alex, when it's their turn, they are actually in the children's room again. And they have this music box device that has like a motion sensor at the end. And it plays this very creepy music, much like our intro music. So it's kind of love it. I know kind of a little plug, (laughs) Um, but they're, so they have it on the ground and Tanner is sitting on the same bed as Dakota was earlier. Both Dakota and Tanner weren't very like moving around or jumping on this bed. They were just kind of sitting there. But when Tanner is sitting on the bed and they're asking questions, the bed frame at the foot of the bed like the it's a metal it's a metal bed frame with like wire like intricate sort of designs on the foot Mm -hmm. and the header 
but one of the little wrought iron sort of designs breaks like the bed snaps like the bed frame breaks he's not leaning on it you can see very clearly he's not leaning on it he's not even touching that part of the bed he's not moving around a lot there's no violent actions it just spontaneously breaks of course this furniture is very old who knows but it was very unsettling and at the same time if he asks he he immediately gets up well he asks if you he's like hey do you not like me sitting on this bed and the music box goes off I don't like that I don't like it either (laughs) again this is one of those times where I'm like please I know this is for a show but leave (laughs) it's breaking things metal things not something that I want to to experience still going into the voices there's a lot of stuff going on here a lot of voices like I mentioned I have some EVPs one of them is from the CCPRS which is the Clay County Paranormal Research of Kansas City Missouri okay um and they have an EVP let's see if it'll let you hear it I'm gonna send you a link to this and I want you to go down to that says male voice whisper one go away and I just want you to listen to that how on a scale of one to walk away how much am I gonna hate this probably like a four it's not it's not that intense but it's the clearest one that I could find I hear away yeah but I don't hear go away it's almost like a duh duh away yeah like I do they got away yeah see I when I listen to it I do hear the away as well the away is very clear the rest of these um EVPs which obviously again I'll kind of give this link in the the notes because they have a lot of evidence from their investigation but a lot of these EVPs have other people talking and it's very hard to hear and they have like a lot of background noise so it's very hard to hear the the actual EVP but yeah so it's kind of like that rough whisper Mm -hmm. which is common I'm also going to play one from Kindred Spirits season three episode nine of a paranormal investigator, John Worley, who investigated the house. And um, it's, it's hard to make out and I'll, I'll let you listen to it. And then I'll let you kind of see what you think it says. They might say it in the episode and that might ruin everything, but I can't remember. Do you hear that? Not well, but what I did hear, it sounded like it said he's killing us. So John Worley got this EVP during his investigation and he claims and kindred spirits claims that says just kill John Worley, like his name. I didn't hear that. Like you, I do hear kill. Again, it's a very harsh, hard to understand, like raspy whisper. 
mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because that's very consistent with all of the EVPs. It's kind of like the same person, but I don't know if that's like the the murderer or maybe it's Josiah. It doesn't make like why would the murderer be there? That's so okay. That's the thing. We'll go into that. Oh, it's a portal. It's a vortex. <laughs> it's not a vortex or a. Per- it's a lightning portal. rod. See, this is where like the whole like there was something connected to the killer, like that was demonic and the dark entity entity has stayed there. So Johnny Hauser is the resident paranormal investigator for the Velisca house. Um, He's like the groundskeeper. He lives right next door. And he does say that there is a negative energy that is intelligent. And he thinks that the good, like the children giggling or, you know, hearing children's footsteps and stuff is residual. Mm-hmm. he has lived next door and he said that from his work as a groundskeeper on ghost adventures he reported that the energy has actually followed him home and he experienced emotional changes and paranormal experiences at his house again this dark energy entity is supposedly moving places which i know things can get connected to people <laughs> from personal experience um and i know that like things can have been said that they can move places but this dark energy is everywhere supposedly Mm, maybe Velisca needs a cleansing yeah that's what i'm thinking and it gets worse (laughs) when they're talking they're actually talking in the children's room and the closet door is open and as they're talking the closet door just shuts nope it just shuts. No drafts in closets. I mean, they open the closet to show that there's nobody in there <laughs> pulling the door closed. CCPRS also got a recording of a door shutting, which I can show you. And later on in the Ghost Adventures investigation, they capture a door forcefully shutting on its own after the footstep sounds are recorded right, be- right before. Again, watch that Ghost Adventures episode. It's very compelling evidence. I can't mm-hmm. see a way that they had somebody close the door that forcefully. There's nobody around it. They're actually all in the barn when that takes place. And it's just like from a static cam. So okay, I will show you this video. Um, so it's kind of weird because they have like a night vision kind of camera on. So they claim that this is a child, the child Paul closing doors because they were communicating with him earlier in the night i don't know i would still be very freaked out if the door just slammed like that on its own i'd get the heck out of there just for the record paul is five years old yes i mean five-year-olds can slam doors but i feel like five-year-olds probably have not as big of an energy signature as like a grown person i'm gonna jump back i know i'm all over the place but I want to focus on Johnny for a moment, the groundskeeper and the resident investigator, Mm -hmm. and briefly go back to the sisters, Linda and Patty, whose father was stabbed because there is a very big story about Velisca having another stabbing. On the night of November 7th, 2014, a ghost hunter and his elderly parents checked into the Velisca axe murder house. Johnny Hauser was there as the building caretaker to let guests in once they check in Mm -hmm. before he goes to bed 
at his own home at night. He had no idea. Only a few hours later, the couple's middle-aged son would be found in a pool of blood with a hunting knife protruding from his chest. He had apparently stabbed himself in the house for no clear reason at all. Johnny was interviewed by Vice, the website, <laughs> not, not the police, uh, by the website. Um, the police would have made more sense. Right, exactly. Um, and I'm just going to summarize what he kind of told him from his perspective. Um, Kindred Spirits also did a interview with the, the investigator, the amateur investigator, whose name is Buck Larson. And I'll kind of like fill in the gaps with what Johnny kind of knew. He said he was in the barn just waiting for a car to pull up and he saw the car stop and this gentleman walked towards the barn and I could see that he had a hunting knife attached to his belt. He was wearing camouflage pants, which was kind of normal attire for that area, says Johnny. And he just shrugged and let him in. He said his, he did have a red flag that he was there with his mom and dad um, because the man seemed to be in his late forties, early fifties. But then he said, he was like, don't be a jerk. Maybe it's their like family thing. And I will say that Buck, Buck did confirm that his parents actually got him this for a birthday gift, like this experience. Happy birthday. Let's go to the murder house. (laughs) So... I could think of other things, but okay. You know, I asked for a popcorn maker for Valentine's Day. I'm not on the level of some of these people. <laughs> so he said they finally, finally, he told me he was going to give the house a piece of his mind. And I said, okay, cool. Have fun with that. <laughs> Is what Johnny said. <laughs> Which, what do you say to somebody who says that? No, don't. <laughs> I like, guess. You didn't have to come if you're mad at it. Right. And then he said the next thing he knew, he was waking up in the morning to like a whole bunch of things and headlines and also like already news reports of people saying that this man stabbed himself. He had to go over and actually clean up the blood. That's not nice. Yeah. He said it was a very emotional scene. Apparently for Martha, she kind of was like, should we just shut this down? And at that point, yeah, maybe (laughs) at least for a little while. I don't blame her for having that reaction. Somebody like hurt harming themselves in this house. That's very traumatic. Yes. I don't think that Martha and her husband have bad intentions. I think that they're just capitalizing on something that is very, um, it's going to get people to come in. I think you and I have a hard time with that topic because we don't necessarily agree with that approach. Yes. But if people didn't do that, we wouldn't have much to talk about, would we? Exactly. So, you know, we benefit from it. It's just, it's kind of uncomfortable sometimes, (laughs) especially with like cases like this. With a big sign Uh, out front. Yeah. Huge sign. The biggest sign. He said he later found out that the gentleman with the hunting knife, Buck, had been in the house by himself doing some sort of solo investigation in the kid's bedroom. On Kindred Spirits, he did elaborate and say that he had set up the crime scene exactly. And then when that wasn't eliciting a response from the spirits, he started aggressively provoking, like saying some like really hard, harsh stuff to the murderer and like just being very, very aggressive. He said that he also saw a very large orb before everything went black. And then he woke up with the knife shoved into his like chest. It had punctured his lung 
and he had to be life flighted to a hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. So Johnny never knew what happened until kindred spirits came and convinced the guy to do an interview on the property. Uh, Johnny, when he spoke to him and asked what happened, of course, he said what had happened and he got very worked up and very emotional and said that it had ruined his life. He said everybody thought he was crazy and thought everyone that he was after money to be on a TV show. And he said he wanted to finally tell his side of the story so people wouldn't think he was insane. This whole, you can listen to Johnny's full interview about the stabbing on season three, episode one of the Extremes podcast, because he goes into more detail about thinking that this guy might have been vulnerable mentally. Mm -hmm. And in Kindred Spirits, he did mention that he had a stroke years before this incident. Okay. So I don't know if his stroke potentially altered his mentality. Yes. He was very coherent when he was talking on kindred spirits. Didn't seem like he was going off on any sort of conspiracy theory tangents. He did seem very shaken about his experiences there. And he said that his mom actually captured a v- EVP of somebody saying, don't worry about Buck, we'll get him. But she destroyed everything after the incident. You're nodding. <laughs> Just get rid of it all. Don't carry anything back with you. It's not. Why keep any me. evidence? Because I need it for the podcast. <laughs> so, so yeah, he's the only one that kind of experienced orb activity. Um, besides the Clay County Paranormal Research Team, they have some photos of some orbs outside of the house, like a lot, of course. I take every orb sighting or orb picture outside of houses with a grain of salt because, you know, it's bugs, bugs, dust, pollen. We live in, or I live in Georgia. It's always pollen. Exactly. So I'm going to show you just real quick. One of the more prominent photos. There we go. Oh, it's snowing. Yeah. That's what I thought when I saw it. It looked like snow. I don't know when exactly. Let's see if they have a date of when they did the paranormal investigation. They don't. They don't have an actual date of when they went into the house. So, you know, I don't know. Does it snow a lot in Iowa? Iowa, I'm sorry. I don't know anything about you, except for a fun fact that I have for the stage moment. But <laughs> so I'm guessing it snows there. I don't know. Ooh. Look on the bottom left window of the house, the, the picture I, sh- I showed you. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. That made me sick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm closing out of that now. Oh no. <laughs> I'm deleting this from my notes. <laughs> Jennifer just pointed out the creepiest face I have ever seen. Oh my God. <laughs> Oh. oh, that gave me chills. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it says like, we all know how I feel. Once I see something like, something like that, I nope out of the investigation. <laughs> and honestly, there is so much more I could get into. Once I started looking at this, everyone has an experience with this house. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm having a stroke now. That wasn't fair. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't know you're a better you investigator to, than me. You have to look at all the corners <laughs> in full zoom, which is I why I'm like, having a stroke. I was just it like, was so oh, my screen. 
I was like, just, oh, pretty orbs. <laughs> Creepy face. I just, we'll, we'll put it on our Instagram for all of you to see. Um, so all of you can throw up while you're scrolling on your phone. I'm drinking your wine. But yeah, I mean, there's so much to, to this house. Uh, there's an official website that has a link called Evidence. Uh, that takes you to a YouTube playlist of all the investigations from vast array of paranormal teams. I highly suggest you check it out. See for yourself what they've collected. The Clay County Paranormal Research Team did a very good workup of their investigation. Ghost Adventures and Destination Fear. Great episodes have a lot of stuff in them. And yeah, I would, I mean, I would love to talk to Johnny Hauser. He seems to have a lot of experience at the house and he seems like a very cool, thorough paranormal investigator. And he's done a lot of interviews. I would highly suggest you at least listen to a little bit of them. Um, cause they're very cool. Yeah. But that is all I have for the paranormal experiences. That was a lot. It is a lot. And kind of going off of the historical stuff, the true crime stuff that you found. And I just don't think this entity that's in here is the murderer. I thought you were going to say, I just don't think it's haunted. No, I think it's haunted. (laughs) I was like, oh, the face is from what then? No, I fully think that this is haunted. I think that it might be haunted. So I think that the, the EVPs that people are getting that have kill in them or the go away or the away I think it might be Josiah or both of the parents I mean yeah I think they're both kind of reaching out and saying you know he got away or like you know somebody killed us if you I mean this is speaking to like a level of somewhat intelligence when it comes to entities like some sort of, you know, reasoning capability, mm-hmm. not just residual energy. Like if you woke up and realized what had happened, like you had been murdered, not just you and your spouse, but also all four of your children and the two other children that you were watching over, like six children in your care were also murdered. There would be such deep feelings that really none of us could understand right like it's on a completely different level there it would be a very heavy energy I would imagine and I mean nothing friendly like if you were feeling that level that's grief that's anger that's you know so many of these strong feelings it's not not going to be a light feeling right and not to mention just like the actual act Right. And I can, I can believe that like the energy in which it took to kill left a mark on the mm-hmm. house as a whole. Like, I, I don't believe there's an intelligent murderer spirit there, no. but I do believe he might've left something behind that is not friendly, like a residual sort of energy of hit the act of doing so. It's just horrible. It. I remember watching the ghost adventure episode forever ago, but I mean, they all kind of start bleeding together after a while. 
Honestly, yes. There's a formula after a while. I did enjoy <laughs> this episode though, because it is a kind of like an early one with the OG crew. And those are my favorites. So but I didn't remember the story. So when I started reading the story, I was like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Yeah. And every person that they interviewed for any episode of the show were deeply affected. I believe it. So regardless of whether there's something dark entities, demonic or whatever going on, I think that when you enter that house, you can just feel the emotion. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I would sleep over there. I, I don't certainly think wouldn't I would... pay almost $500 to have the bejesus yeah. scared out of me. Yeah. Especially with that thing in the window. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, but yeah. So I say murderer being in the house as an entity is a hoax. I do think it's haunted. I, I would say it's haunted. Yes. The murderer being in the house doesn't make any sense to me. Yes. Especially if it was a serial killer and he killed 30 other in, on 30 other instances. Yeah, and he would be just house hopping, and that would be very exhausting. Like, he's got 30 horcruxes just hanging around somewhere. Oh, the your murderer, eyes so big. The, mur- <laughs> the murderer is Voldemort. We solved it. The face but in yeah. the window. It had no nose. But, but yeah, so that's that. Was, that. that was it. I mean, I'm not going to say it was good because it was horrible, but it was interesting for sure. It It was. Do you have a sage moment lined up? I do. I have a bad joke. Love it. But it's perfect because it goes in your field. Okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? HIPAA. HIPAA too? I can't tell you. (laughs) I could tell if you didn't get it or not. (laughs) I did get it. (laughs) (laughs) Can't tell you. It's a secret. It's a secret. I go to jail. Um, (laughs) It was a good joke. And it is in my field. So people are going to think that I'm a doctor or something. Are you not? I'm not not that smart. You're you're not a skin doctor? I'm a skin adjacent doctor. (laughs) Not I run parallel with the dermatologist's. And sometimes I roll my eyes at them. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) mine, like I said, is a trivia. Love those. Did you know? Probably not. That Iowa has the world's largest man-made strawberry. Yeah. Is it like an edible strawberry or is it like a statue of a strawberry? Like when you say man-made. It's okay. So it's in Strawberry Point. That's original. Right. Was that name before or after the man-made strawberry? I think it was after. <laughs> and I have questions. I know you do. And do I have answers? Not really. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to show you the strawberry point strawberry. Um, but it is 15 feet high and 12 feet across. It is the man-made strawberry so it's not it's not a real strawberry but it's pretty cool and i'll put this on our stories as our stage moment and then we have a instagram uh highlight that will keep it up keeps all of our stage moments that we post that's it that's it I mean, but it's oh, wow it's 15 feet high and 12 feet across oh this picture's deceiving it didn't look that big 
It is oh, pretty I, okay. big. No, I see. I see. I see the bench now. It's very impressive. I need for a, Iowa. A, the person who took this picture needed to put somebody standing below it for scale. Mm, I could see that for sure. This strawberry is only four and a half hours away from Villisca. So once you are done getting the bejesus scared out of you at the murder house, you could just take a quick on drive and jaunt and stand under the strawberry and feel a little bit better, I think. So would you? I feel like I would. If they if have you saw that face in person, would a strawberry fix that? If I saw that face in person, therapy wouldn't even fix that. <laughs> Y'all, I would just cry. Don't look at I that just, picture. <laughs> I'm going to post it and you, I'm, I'm going to, I am upset. I was set up. <laughs> I didn't know. I, you knew pranked, I pranked myself. <laughs> I didn't like it anyway. So next week in other, other news, lighter news for Valentine's day, even though it's going to come out a day after Valentine's day, still in the spirit, we are heading to a slightly larger house on the East coast. We're going to be covering a story in bright and cheery New York. Yes. Think of it as a Goolentine's day. There you go. It's great. It was good. I feel like it was, you know what? I'm done with you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We would also love to get some of your suggestions uh be sure to send us your recommendations of stories to cover locations to visit ghost tours to go on all of that good stuff uh you just need to send it to us via social media or our email haunted or hoax pod at gmail.com and also do not forget we are still hosting our candle contest So to enter, just leave us a review. It does not have to be five stars, just an honest review on Apple Podcasts specifically. Then send us a screenshot either through social media or email just so we know how to get in contact with you if you do win. We're super excited for somebody to win that awesome Sage Moment candle that was handmade by the Scaredy Cat Candle Company. It is awesome. We're excited. It is very awesome. I obsessively smell it. We're announcing the winner on March 1st, so don't forget to enter. Yes. I'm I'm watching you. Oh. That like was menacing. The, I'm sorry. I'm not. Like the face in the window. <laughs> like the face in the window. We're never going to get over it. Sorry I'm going to have bad dreams. Um, well, yeah. that's that's it. That's all of, all of the things for this all, week. All of it. And we will uh, talk to you next week. Have a great Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, <laughs> we are ending now. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.